From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White, and this is Making Oprah. Making Oprah. I wanted to work for Oprah from the day she went on the air. As a child, Lisa Erspalmer loved television. At the age of 18, she created a vision board, one of those posters with images that represent what you want to have, do, or be in your life. Lisa put up Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I put Chicago <laughs> and executive producer, and I think there was a baby that never ended up happening, <laughs> a few other weird things. It was definitely a big climb for me, and I had a lot to learn. Lisa was hired by the Oprah Winfrey Show in 1994. Ten years later, she was asked to be co-executive producer. It was extremely stressful because it's, you know, sort of a big responsibility. And I don't think it was a role I really ever thought I would have, even though it was on my vision board. Lisa headed up some big shows. One involved some cars. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Not yet. We'll hear about that episode later. Across years of producing The Oprah Show, Lisa formed a specific beat for herself. I love spectacle. And what I loved about the opportunity to work for Oprah and to do this show was, if you can think it, you can do it. The first phase of The Oprah Winfrey Show simply involved getting their foot in the door. From their national broadcast, they were wildly successful, and Oprah moved the show into her own studio. In the next phase, they honed the show's personality, what it stood for, what it meant, finally landing on Live Your Best Life TV. But the last phase, what they did next, it was all about scale, going bigger and bigger and bigger with everything from who was on the show to what they did. And a great example of that bigness is the premiere of the Oprah Winfrey Show's 24th season. It was a gigantic surprise for Oprah. And Lisa was in charge. First of all, she hates surprises, which I'm sure she told you. (laughs) And if she didn't, she hates surprises. She She said it to us all the time. Everybody doesn't know this. I hate balloons. Oprah's dislike for surprises stems back to an episode 15 years earlier that the staff put on for her. Balloons. I don't know. Something must have happened in my childhood with balloons. The popping of balloons really frightens me. And for my 40th birthday, I come downstairs and there is a studio filled with balloons. And there is, you know, Gladys Knight and Dion, and they're all singing to me, but I can't hear a word because I'm just trying not to step on a balloon. (laughs) So I said then, I don't want any surprises. Let's talk about the September 2009 show with the Black Eyed Peas. That was this huge choreographed dance. It was a surprise for Oprah. It happened on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And going back and watching that clip, I'm thinking, how did you how did you pull that off? Well, you know, I I honestly think it was a miracle that it worked. I had become sort of obsessed with the flash mob concept and I was watching them obsessively online. And Will I Am had a song out I got a feeling. Mm-hmm. I got a feeling. And we love Will I Am because he's so much fun to work with. And so we called him to see if he would rewrite the lyrics to make them specific to Oprah. And of course, he said, dope. <laughs> and then we said, like, we were thinking about doing a flash mob and making it a surprise, you know, for Oprah. Would you guys be in on that? And he was like, dope. That tonight's gonna be. 
Like, I, I felt like if it doesn't work, I'm fired. If it works, it's going to be so amazing, right? This is 2009, the start of a new Oprah Winfrey show season. A huge stage was built on Michigan Avenue right by the Chicago River next to the Wrigley Building. The day of the show, the city's livid. We've shut down the major corridor, Michigan Avenue, for a stunt. It was the kickoff of our 24th season, but I'm sure to people who couldn't get to work, they didn't care. And Oprah said to me, are the peas big enough to shut down Michigan Avenue? And I I looked at her uh, and I said, "I, I don't know. Say hello to the Black Eyed Peas! The event was billed as a kickoff party, and floating above the skyline, the Goodyear blimp invited everyone in the city. I got a feeling that today's gonna be a good day. We shut down a city for a moment of television. Over 21,000 people showed up to see the start of the show. Today's a day. Let's live it up. 24 seasons. Oprah's on stage with the Black Eyed Peas, who had rewritten I Got a Feeling to Oprah Feeling. Jump off that sofa. Keep watching Oprah. Just to be really clear, Oprah knows about everything that's going on, except for one thing. Oprah doesn't know that the entire audience has been taught an elaborate, choreographed dance. And I was worried, what if Oprah doesn't get what's happening? Like, you know, she's on stage. Sometimes there's too much light in your eyes and maybe you can't see the audience. Like I had all these worries, you know, because I just didn't know. Just to paint a picture, when you're watching the video, you've got the Black Eyed Peas on stage giving this really high energy performance. And there is a single person down front, young woman, long hair. I mean, dancing her heart out, but nobody around her is reacting at all. And you know what Oprah's thinking in that moment? (laughs) She's thinking they're not big enough to be shutting down the city. <laughs> Every single person there besides Oprah knows what's going on. So in that moment, I, I you know, said a lot of prayers. <laughs> Please, God, like, if this doesn't work, I'm going to have to throw myself in the river with bricks attached to my legs. If you've never seen the video of this, it's pretty amazing. As the song continues, the dance gradually grows and builds out from that one young woman. Dozens are dancing then hundreds, then 20,000 people. It's an enormous, spontaneous Bollywood movie with a sea of people in sync, ducking down, jumping up, moving their hands in the air. It's impressive. Yeah, that's the best surprise ever. That's the best surprise ever that I was trying to figure out what is going on here? What is going on? And then I noticed all these people start dancing and they're all dancing like, what is happening? And when I finally got it, that's just the greatest surprise ever. Finally, Oprah is jumping up and down, screaming. As you're watching the flash mob unfold and you're watching her react to it, what was going on in your head? Thank God. Miracle. I mean, I think that's what was so exciting about all of these opportunities. You would put so much into it, and then when it worked, it was the greatest feeling ever. And it was really beautiful to see this whole audience of people, people who don't know each other, you know, people in wheelchairs, people from all walks of life, literally dancing together. I mean, it was really even more beautiful than I think we expected. (laughs) 
we thought it would be a fun moment, but it ended up being really a moving moment that was really impactful to a lot of people. A month and a half after the Michigan Avenue flash mob, Oprah announced that after one more season, she was ending the show. But they would go out with even bigger surprises, bigger events, and bigger screams of unadulterated joy. And that's what we're going to look at now. The big shows, the big guests, and the big giveaways. Oprah living her best life at the top with some larger-than-life shows and why it all had to end after 25 years. But before we get there, here's one of the show's many, many theme songs. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Patti LaBelle. This is part three of our podcast about The Oprah Winfrey Show. And if you want to know how we got here, we'd highly recommend that you go back and listen from the beginning. In part one, we were in the late 80s. Quincy Jones did the theme song and the producers created the show by the seat of their pants. Then in part two, we covered the 90s when Whitney Houston did the theme song and Oprah built her media empire. Here we go. And now it's the 2000s when Oprah is singing her own theme song. Oprah is sitting in the throne of American pop culture. She commands a regular worldwide audience of tens of millions. She can turn a book into a bestseller, a product into a trend, and people into stars. I believe I'll run on, see what the end will be. Believe I'll work on, find out what waits for me. I see... 10,000 stories and glories and dreams. See angels right here on earth. In the 2000s, the Oprah empire was also branching out. She had the most successful launch in magazine history with O Magazine. Within 12 months, it was bringing in more than $140 million a year. In 2003, Oprah became the first female African-American billionaire. And people began talking Oprah for president. But in the meantime, this era of the show was all about testing the limits of what can be done with the most powerful talk show we've ever seen. Just how big can the surprises get? And the crowds, the screams, the dreams, and the stunts. This was daytime television with no limits, until suddenly there were some, and Oprah knew it was time to stop. Remember that national launch in 1986 and how they couldn't book Miami Vice star Don Johnson? Well, that wasn't a problem anymore. The Oprah Winfrey Show could now book the biggest names in pop culture. Any and every celebrity would walk on the Oprah stage to get the Oprah interview and the Oprah treatment. And Oprah says it was all for the viewers. So I could ask the questions they wanted to ask. I was working for them always. For example, if I were to have Channing Tatum on, I don't want to ask him about his personal life or his wife or his kids or his other. But I know the audience wants to know it. 
So I would ask in the name of the audience. I would ask because they wanted to know. They are curious about those things. I'm not curious about it at all because I know your personal life is your personal life. I know even though you have the label or title of the most famous person in the world at the time, your feelings, your doubts, your way of being is just like really like everybody else because the only difference between being famous and not is more people know your name. And that is the only difference. So they're just like us. But Oprah would give those stars a big intro. Making a rare appearance, please welcome the greatest Muhammad Ali. Nelson Mandela, the Clintons, the Bushes, the Obamas. Please welcome Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, and Julianne Moore to our tea party. Welcome Leonardo DiCaprio. Whitney Houston, Tina Turner. He's my brilliant friend, Tom Hanks. Come on out here. A-list doesn't even describe it. And in these interviews, it didn't feel like an event for the show as much as it was a milestone in the celebrity's career to be on Oprah. They'd sit comfortably with Oprah for a long time. They'd open up in ways they didn't expect. They'd maybe cry. Okay, they'd probably cry. And certainly do things they wouldn't do on other shows. I heard you I'm not going to be... I can't be cool. You know what I mean? I can't be laid back. I just... And this is the only time we're going to mention this, but if I asked you to name one celebrity interview on The Oprah Show, it would probably be this one. We've never seen you behave this way before. I know. Have you ever felt this way before? Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch. So the stunts and celebrities, what the audience saw was more intense and more elaborate than ever before. And behind the scenes, the show's production was more sophisticated than ever. J.R. Chappell was the Oprah Winfrey Show's audio director for over 20 years. My whole concept of the mixing of the Oprah Show all those years was I was trying to put the viewer on the couch with her. Of course, so much about an Oprah interview had to do with how engaging and relaxed an interviewer she was. But a ton of it had to do with the technical craft backstage. And these people were some of the best in the business. The Oprah Winfrey show was all about the visual spectacle, how it all looked, the sets, the clothes, the makeup and the staging. But, and this is a podcast after all, how the show sounded was equally critical. So it was all about that that tightness of the sound and the intimacy of it. Compared to the rest of daytime, J.R. Chapel mic'd Oprah and her guest really close to help boost that intimacy. And you can see this on some other shows you watch. You hear it's big and, and the room sounds big, which perspective-wise puts you in the room, not on the couch with her. We have some great personal photos of Mr. Travolta's. Tell us the story behind some of them. We're going to look at them. Oh, oh, this is the family. This was just uh, my mother took a lot of photographs of us. and that she liked These to tools that I use to try and make the room not sound like you were in a big room, like, you know, if it's... Oprah and John Travolta, that you're in that third chair there, right next to them, and experiencing it that way, not as an audience member. Oh, thanks. Skinny little thing. Skinny little thing. Not anymore. (laughs) Look at your eyes there. How old are you there? Yeah, I was mostly eyes. Mostly eyes. 
You can hear Oprah and Travolta really well, but you can also really hear the studio audience. JR mic'd them up too. And over the years, the, the way that I did the crowd reaction mics, you know, I started in 90 with four mics. And, you know, by the end of the show, it was 32 mics. You know, I had microphones hidden in the chairs. You know, and that's what gave that big, beautiful crowd reaction sound. So much of the Oprah Winfrey show had to do with the energy from the studio audience, what Oprah calls the surrogate viewers. And in order to bottle that energy, when they weren't filming, producers would run the audience through different reactions, laughs, cries, screams, so that they could record them. The recordings would then be used in post-production to cover up various edits. So let's say you need to cut to a commercial break, but Oprah is still talking. Well, an editor like JR could cut out the sound of Oprah talking and cover it up with these sounds. And these sounds you're hearing are the actual Oprah audience recordings. We have all of the big, you know, like the crowd reaction that would happen when we would go to a commercial break. So that would be just the big audience applause, maybe some whistles and stuff in there, depending on the mood of that commercial break. And so they would use these to cover up those edits. All of these sound effects. So whatever was happening at the time, that's why there's so many of them. The medium applause, the laughs, that sound effect would have to cover over that edit so that it sounded seamless. We very rarely, if ever, use these to accentuate like they do in sitcoms. The fact is we didn't need to. The Oprah audience was always so into the show that the natural crowd reaction always worked really well. It was just in those places where we had to do cuts. At some point in the history of the Oprah Winfrey show, the producers realized they no longer needed to prompt the audience with an applause cue going into a commercial break. And they did it anyway. We couldn't stop it. You know, the audience was just that into the show that they they just knew it from watching it all those years. They would just start applauding and clapping on their own. This was the hottest ticket in television. Going to the Oprah Winfrey show was a life event. People lined up for hours and hours to laugh and cry and scream with Oprah. People came from all over the world as we grew. They come with their sisters and their friends. They get new outfits. They've had pedicures and manicures. They've told everybody back home. It is an event in their lives to come to the show. In 25 years, through sickness and in health, no matter what, I showed up. There were times where I, you know, had a virus. I was so sick. I remember interviewing Christine Aguilar and I was on a stool and I thought, I am hallucinating and I'm going to fall (laughs) off the stool. But I would show up because it would make me sicker to know that somebody has been prepared. I would think about the time it took, the money you spent, the people you told, the excitement you held. And then, what? You're not here? Because what? They would rather you drag your cold... Your virus, your sickness, your, your goal-ridden, pneumonia-filled <laughs> self, and say, I can barely speak. Please help me. I love, loved my job. Sally Lou Loveman had worked with the Oprah Winfrey Show since 1987. In 2003, she became director of audience services, meaning she was the one in charge of ticketing and prepping the studio audience for Oprah. And I loved seeing people's faces 
when they walked in the door and they screamed and they held on to the person that they loved the most. And that, I, I have chills when I talk about it, that is what I loved about that television show. And, you know, whether people left the studio with, you know, a CD or a compliment from Oprah, they always left with bigger hearts. Coming up, the studio audience leaves with more than bigger hearts. And that is why I wanted to give you the hottest ticket in television! You get a call! You get a call! Hold on. We're almost there. Next on Making Oprah. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. First, I want to talk about one of the best ways I believe that we can prepare for giving, and that is meditation. So how about we meditate on this? In 1996, Oprah introduced a segment on her show called Favorite Things, where she would select some stuff that she really liked and then talk about it on the show. This annual special was normally aired around Thanksgiving. You're jumping up and down. You don't even know what it is. And oh yeah, the audience would be given all the stuff Oprah picked too. This 15 gigabyte Apple iPod costs $399. But I got some music for your ears because you're going home with your own iPod. For someone who hates surprises, Oprah sure enjoyed staging them. I always liked taking a sentence, like, I love you, Day, and then we turned it into a show. Thank you, Day, we turned it into a show. Taking something and then creating the show from it. Founding producer Ellen Rackadin became executive producer of the Oprah Winfrey Show in 2004. The origin story of Favorite Things began with her. Favorite Things was something that actually started from my sister, she gave me a pair of pajamas, the red and white big giant checks, and I gave them to Oprah because she was a PJ girl, and she loved it, and she glommed onto it, and I said, oh my gosh, we should do your favorite things. I had a favorite pair of pajamas, and I loved it so much that I wanted to share, wanted everybody to know about these pajamas. I discovered Uggs, and then I loved it so much I bought Uggs for everybody in the building, <laughs> Harpo. I had a giving out Uggs day where I gave out 500 pairs of Uggs to every employee. And then that wasn't enough. I just, I wanted everybody in Chicago to have the Uggs because if you just knew about these Uggs, you would never have to have wet feet again. Yeah. Remember back in the day when everyone was wearing furry moon boots? We have Oprah to thank for that. The great Uggs sales surge of 2003 was one of many examples where Oprah's blessing would transform the popularity of a brand. Then and now, brands would kill to be included on Oprah's favorite things list. But, and here it is, in 2004, there was an Oprah giveaway that became a seminal, iconic, ridiculously well-known media event. It was a giveaway of such scale and spectacle that it became the signature moment that most Americans remember about the Oprah Winfrey show. Lisa Erspalmer was the executive producer of that show, and she still can't escape people saying to her these four words. You get a car. Everywhere we go, people say that. (laughs) Even now, they're like, you get a car. All the time. It just happened the other day again. I don't even remember where we were, but somebody did the you get a car again. 
hilarious. Under Lisa, the lead producer for the 2004 car giveaway was Terry Golder, who by then had been working for The Oprah Winfrey Show for 10 years. It takes a lot of producers to put on an Oprah show. There were people that sort of had my back and I had their backs. And that's kind of how it worked. For us as producers, Terry Golder, who's the producer of that show and everybody who worked on it, it was super exciting. Lisa got word from Ellen that there was a big idea for the show. This big idea came from Oprah's best friend. You know, it all started with Gail King. You know, Gail's really funny. And Gail was on an airplane sitting next to somebody from the car company. And they were talking about giving away cars on the show. Like at that point, I think we'd given away like Lay's chips, baked Lay's and pajamas and things like that. But we hadn't given away a car or a series of cars. And I think they started out with giving us 25 cars. And like every week, Ellen would push me to ask for more. And, you know, by the time like it was the week of the show, they had given us 275 cars. And I didn't know where we were going to hide them and how we were going to reveal this to the audience. I just thought, how are we going to give away cars? And why would I give away cars? Is a car my favorite thing, really? Because for me, everything I did and continue to do has to have the basis of truth in it. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It just becomes a thing. So when we sat down and started talking about the car giveaway, I said, how do we find people who really need cars? That would make it worth it to me. There would be a depth and intention. What's our intention in giving away the cars? So, you know, you sit in a meeting and, uh, you know, intention's my favorite word with the producers, as they will tell you. And they were like, intention? We're giving away cars. Why do you need an intention? The intention is the person ends up with a car. I go, well, what if we find people who actually are in circumstances where the car will make a big shift in the trajectory of their, their, their work and life being, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a reason to do a car show. So a bunch of producers set to work finding people in the studio audience for whom a new car would be a big deal, like something that would make their lives better. And to do that without giving away the surprise, they awkwardly asked things like, how do you get to work? How old is your car? And somehow they found people who actually needed vehicles. And probably not everybody in the audience had a story like that, but definitely a good amount of them did. There were a few lucky ones, but... For the most part, the audience, and they had no idea, they all needed cars. And that made it even a little more special. So they have the idea, they have the cars, they have the right audience. By this point, the Harpo staff had become used to putting on giant shows. But even for them, this was a big one. So, twas the night before taping. It was like Christmas Eve the night before. And I remember Oprah saying that. I felt the same way. Nobody could sleep. Director of Audience Services, Sally Lou Loveman. We could barely wait for the sun to rise. We were hiding 276 cars in our parking lot. I remember the night before I could not sleep. Our team stayed up all night. You haven't slept. Gina Spray was one of the producers on the car giveaway. And you're nervous because it's the season premiere and you want it to go huge and you don't want to be the one ruining the spray. So you're sick to your stomach and you're about to throw up. The night before, what was happening? We were putting bows on cars. (laughs) Like, you know, we were... Obsessed with detail. Oprah was obsessed with the detail. Oprah was obsessed with the detail. 
And the night before they hatched their scheme of distributing automobiles, just when the producers thought they were all ready, Oprah made them redo a couple of things. First of all, I didn't leave the building until like 10, 30, 11, because I remember walking through, seeing them doing the bows for the cars, and the bows were too small, in my opinion. So I said, this bow is too small. They were like, but we've already done however many bows. I go, you got to redo the bows because the bow should cover the whole hood of the car. <laughs> it should not be like a little bow. You and you want the bow to wrap around the body of the car and you want the bow to cover the whole hood of the car so that it makes an impression because so much of a gift is about how it's packaged. So they redid the bows. Lead producer Terry Golder. My team came up with an idea of putting keys to all the cars in boxes. Here's the plan. It's a plan of misdirection. The car giveaway is a surprise because they fake it out. Now, the team had 11 boxes with keys in them that they were going to give to 11 unsuspecting members of the audience who desperately needed cars. Oprah was then going to promise a 12th car to one more member of the audience when, in fact, they had 276 cars, one for every audience member. So they were going to hand out boxes to the entire audience with the promise that one of them contained the keys to the 12th car. Of course, they all had keys in them. Okay, all set. Eh, not quite. And when they handed me the key boxes, this will be the 12th box, I shook the box. I went, oh my gosh. If you shake the box, the key is go- you're going to hear that there's a key in there. So when you're passing out the keys, everybody's going to know that there's a key in there. And you've ruined the surprise. So then we had to go through and do all the keys and tape them down in the boxes. Ah! Producer Gina Spray. So then I had to unpack 250 boxes and rewrap the keys super tight. So if they were shaken, you would never know there was a key in it. Which was really a very smart thing. Because what is the first thing people did when they got the box? box. They shook the box. (laughs) They shook the box. Again, producer Terry Golder. I remember that night Ellen Rakuten going through the script with Oprah. And they all wanted to make sure that everyone in the audience knew they got a car. Because with all the pandemonium and all the excitement, it would be maybe difficult for them to realize that they indeed got one of the cars as well. So as lead producer, you provide the script for Oprah. I'm pretty sure I wrote, uh, you get a car. (laughs) And I remember Oprah practicing that you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. And the more she practiced it, the more excitement I could see was in her eyes. Okay, it's our 19th season! And I, I, I am so excited about today's season premiere. I think, really, my heart is palpitating. Just to be on the safe side, Terry had taken some extra precautions. The audiences were supercharged. (laughs) I did have paramedics on site. Okay, so this is big. This is really big. So here's what I'll say right now. All summer long, we've been planning the biggest, grandest, multi-million dollar wildest dream show in history. So 
At this point, Oprah brings 11 teachers slash needers of cars on stage. Now, I just want to tell y'all right now, we've been lying to you. They all think that they're here for a whole other show. Oh, no. That's not true. You're really here because you all share a wildest dream. Every single one of you desperately needs a brand new car! Roll it in, boys! So the audience is just sitting back as observers thinking, oh, wow, nice for them. They got a car. Isn't that nice? Oh, that's a nice story. And that was the fun of it. I got a little twist. Because as you saw, there's 11 of them. And I said that... uh, There were 11 cars outside, but really I have one car left. And then I have one more key that we're going to give to the 12th person. Right now, everybody in the audience, now listen to me carefully, is being given a special package, and I don't want you to open it. Do not open it. Cameras are on you, so do not open until I tell you. Do not open until I tell you. Okay. Does everybody have a box? Yes. All right. Please uh, box model. That was one of the great... I'm telling you, my heart was pounding so hard because I was as excited for the people getting the cars as the people were for getting the cars. Are you ready? JR is back in our audio booth. I want... You know, JR, this calls for a drum roll. Cue the drum roll. All right. Open your boxes. Open your boxes. One. Two, three. You get a car. 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 So you get a car. You get a car. You get a car. Everybody gets a car. I was screaming as loudly as I could because they were screaming so loud, and I was trying to to be heard over what at this point was just happy chaos. Everybody gets a G six. Again, producer Gina Spray. I remember we didn't know that it would go that well. Like, it was just magical. It can happen anytime, anywhere, to anybody. And it's our wildest dream season, and we're not done yet. Keep watching. When you watch 275 people just have, like, total meltdowns, I feel like you're, you're just so happy for them. And it's just, and then there's hope. There's like, oh my gosh, that's Mary from Tucson. Like, there's nothing special about her. And so maybe there's something really spectacular that could happen to me too. So I think there was just hope. And it was just, it's so nice to see people that happy. Though, I will tell you, it was devastating after because gift tax is a thing. I don't know if you know about gift tax. Yes. And, and it's always a complicated thing when you're giving stuff away. But we paid for the sales tax and the registration, and we told the audience after, if they didn't want to have to pay a gift tax, they could actually take cash for the car. And um, because we didn't pay the gift tax, people complained to the press. And that was devastating. You can understand why some of the audience might be annoyed with getting a bill of up to $7,000, depending on your tax bracket. But then you can also understand the producers looking at that and going, we just gave you a car. We put our, like, whole soul into this moment of television and, you know, with real intention to do something good. And so when people had a negative reaction, it, like, literally hurt our feelings, (laughs) you know, we're people and it made us really sad. 
It was really hard to produce shows after that because all the audience wanted cars. But beyond the car giveaway, Oprah and her staff perfected the art of staging joy. And they tried to go bigger and bigger and even more spectacular surprises for unsuspecting fans. She has no idea we have hidden cameras all around her. Hello, is Bernadette here? And in another big giveaway, Oprah took her Wildest Dreams bus tour to a Chicago single mom who was raising nine children in a three-bedroom apartment. Oprah made her a homeowner. So I think we've come up with the answer to your prayers. This is what I think we're going to do. We are buying you a house! This was life-changing, ratings-boosting, unbridled joy. And one house is great. But after Hurricane Katrina, Oprah helped build 65 for displaced families. In its final 10 years, the show increasingly became a vehicle for Oprah's philanthropy. And as with everything she did, Oprah brought the audience along with her. She asked her viewers to donate their spare change through a charity Oprah called the Oprah Angel Network. We launched our Angel Network at the start of this season. Uh, we weren't quite sure what to expect. Well, here we are 10 months later, and your response has been overwhelming. I thank you, America. By 2008, Oprah's viewers had contributed over $70 million to projects around the world. It's claimed that Oprah herself has by now given over $350 million to causes worldwide. In 2005, The Oprah Winfrey Show launched a Christmas special called Christmas Kindness. It sent toys and necessities to children orphaned by AIDS in South Africa. Many of them had lost their parents to AIDS, which is literally, at this moment, devastating much of South Africa. But many of us are oblivious to this plague that is creating millions of orphans, not only in South Africa, but around the world. If you remember the beginnings of the Oprah Winfrey show, when they did shows about why he didn't call you back after that first date or what jeans make your butt look good, this is totally worlds apart. This was Oprah trying to change the world and putting that on TV for millions. It's more than a daytime talk show. It's trying to be a real positive force. And that brings us to what might be the biggest example of all of this. After her trips to South Africa, Oprah founded the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls, an all-girls school for South African children who had experienced poverty and personal trauma. And I realized in those moments why I was born, why I'm not married and do not have children of my own, because I knew that these are my children. It was for me like coming home, and I made a decision to be a voice for those children, to empower them, to help educate them, so that the spirit that burns alive inside each of them does not die. When we come back, what you can do today to help. And when we come back on Making Oprah, the show becomes too much to handle for everyone involved, and Oprah realizes it's time to say goodbye. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
In the 2000s, the Oprah Winfrey Show grew bigger and bigger and bigger, which meant the staff worked harder and harder and harder. Across 25 seasons, the Oprah Winfrey Show created 4,561 shows. And in its final years, the show was cranking out about 150 episodes a season. That means as an Oprah Winfrey Show producer, every week you're helping to put together a solid five hours of television. When I first started working there, you work so hard. And then when you're not there, you kind of don't want to talk about the Oprah Show. You're just done with it. You want to be with your friends, you want to have a drink, you know, you just want to relax. Amanda Cash was a senior associate producer hired around the time of the 2004 car giveaway. And everywhere I went, my friends would introduce me sometimes. This is Amanda. She works for the Oprah show. And then some people would say, oh, can you get me tickets? Can you get me on favorite things? What's Oprah like? Is she really with Sedman? They would ask all these questions. And then you got to go to family dinners like Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatnot, and all of your relatives would ask so many questions. And after about a year of it, I said to my mom one time, I'm like, you know what? If anyone asks me any more questions about Oprah, I'm just going to tell them I'm not talking about her. I'm not talking about the show. Let's talk about something else. And my mom was like, you can't be so rude. You know, they love you. And then about two years later, she said to me, she's like, oh, my God, if anyone else asks me about the Oprah show, if I can get them tickets, I'm just lying and telling everyone you're a teacher. Even more than ever, Oprah and Harpo were the place. They were to talk TV what the 1990s Chicago Bulls were to basketball. A magnet for spectacle and fun, sure, but also for the most driven, ambitious people in television. You know, I guess I would say is that Harpo and Oprah really attract a group of people that were self-motivated and driven and committed to doing this work. Katie Davis worked for Harpo for almost 20 years, eventually becoming supervising producer. And so, yes, it was long hours. It was, you know, a 24-7 commitment, but it was worth it. And it was a choice that we made. And I sometimes look back on that and I think, would I do the same thing all over again? And, and, and I would. I wanted to do it. It would have worked for free to do that. It was, it was that fulfilling and that amazing a life experience. The Harponians, as they call themselves, worked hard. And to be fair, they were paid well. And the vacation time, about three months, was very generous. But during the taping months, it was exhausting and grueling, especially for Oprah. I would come home after a 14, 17, 18-hour day. Sedman says, remember, there were times you didn't even take your clothes off. Sedman, I always took my clothes off. He goes, there are times you didn't take your clothes off, I'm telling you. You would fall asleep in the chair, and you'd wake up in the chair, and you'd get up in the next morning and do this, start it all over again. So... Uh, I don't remember that, but I'm sure there were a couple of times where I just like, I can't make it upstairs. I'm <laughs> just going to sleep right here. If there is one recurring theme that we heard from practically every Harponian we spoke to for this series, it's this. We worked really hard, but we believed in what we were doing. And the reason for their energy and devotion was their host. She worked hard. She worked really hard. She worked harder than anybody there. And it inspired our loyalty. And it's hard. I got up at 5 a.m. and I had kids and there were days I felt selfish for leaving my home and my family because I loved my job. You see that this is important what we're doing. It's not just a TV show. You just Everybody was so loyal to her because she was just so awesome to us. She was such a great boss and such a great person 
that it made us all really want to work very hard for her. We desperately wanted to do good and to do great work. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, Oprah was probably a mother figure. I think there were those dynamics. So nobody wanted to disappoint mom. Ah, ah. That's what I think. Hmm. I could be wrong. You know, a lot of Harponians we talk to spoke about how completely immersed they were in producing the show. And at the same time, the show had this focus on self-care. Were there times when you looked at the production schedule and how much people were working, how much you were working, and feel conflicted about the message the show was was putting out as compared to the life you were actually living? Um, conflicted is is not the word. But do I feel conflicted? No, because I think ultimately the message and power of the show was worth it. It was worth it all. And do I feel that there was a better way to have managed it and us not become this organization that was really competing with itself for the next best thing? Um, we, you know, could have could have could have done better on that. You know, it's like like the old entertainment saying, "You're only as good as your last show." And I would say, we really felt that deeply. So even though Oprah was always saying to people, "I don't want people to be here all night," it is something that happened a lot. It was a culture that if you went home at five o'clock, then you were a wuss and you couldn't make it, and you you wouldn't survive. Somebody would say, I've been here 18 hours. Somebody said, I've been here 24. Somebody said, I've been here 27. I literally heard that one day. And I said, you've been here 27 hours, and you think you're going to drive home? You know. What I, drove that culture? What, what was? Because it, ne- it, you know, it's just like a newspaper. It never ends. You may do the greatest show ever. There is Tom Cruise. Oh, my gosh. She came on. He brought Katie Holmes. There is a, but tomorrow is another day. You, it's only Tuesday. So what are you going to do tomorrow? And, and it never ends. It just never ends. It never ends. But then it did end. On November 20th, 2009, Oprah announced that after one more season, her show would end. So at the top of the show, I told you that I have some news to share with you. So here goes. After much prayer and months of careful thought... I've decided that next season, season 25, will be the last season of The Oprah Winfrey Show. I love this show. This show has been my life. And I love it enough to know when it's time to say goodbye. Did it become increasingly more difficult to top what you'd done the year before? I mean, to the point where we literally sat in a room saying... What about out of space? Do you think we could take the audience out of space? Somebody did bring that up. Like, we could get Richard Branson. We could get a thing. We could go. We could take the audience. And you could go out of space. So, you know, because w- w- what else was there to do? I knew that if I continued at the pace that I was going, that I would not be able to maintain the level of quality. You have to lower your standards in order to keep the volume going because you're now competing with everything. You're competing with the internet and bloggers and YouTube and you can just, you just is too much. So what you have to do to keep running faster and faster and faster and do making it bigger and bigger and bigger. I feel that 
there wasn't another thing to say in a way that we hadn't said it. And I never wanted to be at the point where people would say, oh, she should she, oh, she have stopped that show two years ago. <laughs> it used to be good, but now I don't know what they're doing on there. So I never wanted that. And I never wanted to be in a position where I did not want to come to work. Ladies and gentlemen, making her 4,559th appearance on the Oprah Winfrey Show, please welcome Oprah. And as a finale, the show filmed two star-studded shows at the United Center in Chicago. With an audience of over 20,000 people, Oprah was joined on stage by Will Smith, Michael Jordan, Beyonce, Madonna, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, pretty much any celebrity you can think of. Aretha Franklin sang Amazing Grace. John Legend announced that 25 new libraries would be built across the U.S. in Oprah's honor. Diane Sawyer announced that 25,000 oak trees would be planted across the country to remind everyone to live their best lives. And finally, hundreds of men who graduated from Morehouse College, thanks to Oprah, filled the stage. Oprah burst into tears and ended it all by saying, Thank you for taking me to a place that is beyond joyous. It feels like the rapture. The next day, Oprah filmed the final, final show in her own studio. Well, from day one, Chicago, you took me in, into your living rooms and into your kitchens and your dens, and you spread the word to your friends. I heard you saying, have y'all seen that black girl on TV named Oprah? (laughs) So when you came to your last day, in the building. What what was the feeling like walking out? <laughs> when we talked to people who worked on the show about this time, they all had their own experience, but for everyone, it was intense. We had been producing these sort of blockbuster shows up until the last day, so it was sort of like going 100 miles an hour to a stop. My very last day was one of the hardest days I've ever experienced. It was a huge part of who we were, part of our identity. So now that it's over, that's hard for a lot of people. Like if you think about all of the audience who said Oprah has changed their lives. Well, Oprah was in their living room five hours a week. And we were spending 80 hours a week with Oprah, with that show. And so as much as it changed everybody who watched it, it it transformed those who worked on it. You always get perspective, I think, later in life. And I probably never would have gotten any perspective if I hadn't gotten fired. Co-executive producer Lisa Erspalmer, the one who, at the age of 18, made a vision board with Oprah Winfrey on it. She went on to work at the Oprah Winfrey Network, but she was fired in 2012. And she's actually pretty happy about that. Being forced, frankly, to stop was probably one of the best things that could happen to me. You know, we spent our entire careers excavating other people's lives. And, like, I can speak for myself and say, you know, I wasn't doing that. I wasn't excavating my own life. 
I was so fascinated by everyone else's, <laughs> you know, and I think at any in everybody's lives, you know, at some point you have to look at your own life and see why you did certain things that you did and why you ended up where you are. And I think that's interesting. I have had the longest goodbye. We let go of 250 some people. Another 220 remained. Then we started last year saying goodbye again, letting people go in stages. And finally, this past April, I went and I think there were like 80 people left. And I was like, all right, it's been seven years (laughs) and I'm still saying goodbye. Time to say <laughs> goodbye again. So that's, and there were people say this is the final, final goodbye. As a reminder, we started this podcast with the recent demolition of Harpo Studios to make way for a new McDonald's headquarters. So now this is finally, really, really goodbye. This past April, Oprah saw Harpo Studios before it came down. So I drove by Harpo and saw the empty building for the first time. And as I'm going down Randolph, I'm thinking my heart's pounding. What am I going to feel when I see it? I've driven down this street how many times? And what I felt, it felt like, I know so many of you, when you've looked over the casket at a loved one, and you know they're no longer there. You are looking at the dead body, but they are no longer there. That's exactly how I felt when I saw Harpo. Whoa, the spirit is gone. We, the Harponians, were the spirit. And now it's just a building. I felt nothing. Since the end of the Oprah Winfrey show, Oprah Winfrey has, of course, been working on the Oprah Winfrey Network, an entire cable channel. It had tremendous potential and promotion, but in its first week, it was watched by about half a million people. Its viewership has improved since then, but the network hits nothing like the 40 million weekly viewers that The Oprah Winfrey Show had in its last years. I assumed that a lot of that audience would just automatically gravitate to OWN. And they were faithful and loyal and committed and believers in the message of higher consciousness in yourself that we were the the platform for every day. What I did not realize until it was done is that we had created a habit. And that habit was a four o'clock habit. And I didn't even realize it when people were saying, oh God, I'm going to miss you so much. What am I going to do at four o'clock? All of this begs the question, could any of this ever happen again? Could Oprah's ratings, success, and awesome presence in American culture ever be repeated by someone else? Not anymore, no. Former executive producer Debbie DeMeo. Television is too splintered. I mean, you'll have a successful television show, but there's, there's just no way that you could get 20 million people all together on one afternoon, Monday through Friday, ever again. Television just doesn't work that way anymore. But that doesn't stop some people from trying. It, it makes me crazy now. Having my own production company. Former executive producer Ellen Rackadin. Listen, if I had a dollar for every person that's come to my office and said I'd like to be the next Oprah, you know, I'm always like, you be your best you. <laughs> that was the best her. You know, talent still drives television. To get through that screen 
which is a very thick piece of glass, and get into your living room or your bedroom and move somebody to do something, to feel a certain way, is very difficult. And I think it was great for young girls to be able to come home after school and watch Oprah, and we had huge college you know, fans. There's just not that same Oprah space you know, where you're going and talking about all the different things that are affecting your life. And I just, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be great if we could come up with one. Got any ideas? Let let me know. (laughs) Debbie and Ellen, two of the show's creators, say that the TV business has changed. With cable, the internet, they say there won't be another Oprah. You simply can't convene a daily audience that big anymore. But setting that aside, one thing that stands out looking at the whole run of the Oprah Winfrey show is just how unlikely it was that it existed at all. When Oprah first flew into Chicago back in 1983, she says it felt like she was stepping into destiny. And looking at the show's success and Oprah's incredible presence in our culture, it can seem like it was all preordained. But looking closely at the show's evolution, the mistakes, the reinventions, you can see moments when it all could have fallen apart or never happened at all. Think about it. Oprah Winfrey was a black woman in the 1980s, a local TV host in Baltimore who faced significant odds just to get a job in a bigger market. She rose to become one of the most powerful people in American culture. With that power, she and her producers chose to create a space where, sure, they talked about comfy pajamas, but it was also a space where women were empowered, where people were encouraged to think about themselves and each other and making the world better. They somehow pulled that space out of the trashy and sensational world that is American daytime television. And it wasn't just that they commanded an audience. They made that space one where millions of Americans from all walks of life chose to meet each other, to gather in the afternoons, in the soft TV lighting of 4 p.m., to be with Oprah. I raised an entire generation of people who came home from school and watched with their mothers, who were the mothers, who had their daughters and sometimes their sons watching the show, who talked about what happened on the Oprah show today. When you say uh, you, you raised this generation, how does that, how does that feel? I feel like, well done. Well done. I know, that sounds huge. And from almost anyone else, it would sound a little inflated. But Oprah can make a pretty compelling case. And I have to say, personally, Oprah means a lot. Her success means I grew up watching an African-American woman make a way for herself and other women in a business where that really hadn't happened before. From the time I was 12 years old, I watched her create a media empire, and I watched her with my mom, who always held Oprah up as a model for what was possible for me. So, you know, no pressure. When you think about the 25 years of the show, what do you hope your audience... Oh. Yeah, I'll let you finish the question, but I, I'll read it. No, if you, you know what I'm asking. Go ahead. This is what I know. I'm telling you. When I did the Girls' Academy, 
in South Africa, I remember saying to Maya, this will be my greatest legacy. Oh, Maya, this is so wonderful. What's going to happen in these girls' lives and be able to change these lives? And Maya said to me, you have no idea what your legacy will be. You have no idea. Your legacy, she says, is every woman or man or child who ever watched a show and said, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to leave my abusive husband. I'm going to find a way to not to hit my child. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to go get my breasts examined. I'm going to get a new bra. I am going to start my own business. Your legacy is everybody who ever saw a show. And to this day, there is nowhere that I can go that somebody doesn't say, come up to me and say, thank you. Ah, makes me want to cry. Somebody will come up and say, thank you. And that happens to me every day, everywhere I go. The connection is deep because I intended it to be. That's it. Making Oprah is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is Colin McNulty. And the executive producers are Ben Calhoun and Joel Meyer. Really? But what, I mean, I will say this. There is no better legacy. Hello, there is no better legacy. Record, Colin. Record. <laughs> what Maya said is true, and I think about it all the time. I think about how everybody wants to live their life knowing, you know, people say, oh, if I could just affect one person, well... I know that I affected millions. I I mean, I know that millions of people saw themselves and the world differently and the possibility and the hope and the joy and the triumph and the just the ability to rise by watching that show every day. That's what I'm proud of. That's what I'm proud of. Yeah. That was great. Thank you. It's a good place to end. Really special thanks to Joe Dassault, who mixes this show, our digital editor, Tricia Bobita, and our intern, Annie Nguyen. Some audio in today's episode was courtesy of Harpo Incorporated. And also thanks to our friends at Curious City and This American Life. My mother-in-law, Eluteria Memba, passed away while we were making this podcast, but she heard the first episode, and I'm glad. I miss you, Mom. From everyone on the team, thanks to our families. They were really patient with us for the last few months as we were immersed in everything Oprah. But family about that. We recorded so much material from Oprah and her staff that we will soon release more Making Oprah. It never ends. So if you're subscribed, stay that way. And if you're not subscribed, head to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you take two minutes to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate it. And spread the word about Making Oprah. Tell your mom, tell your auntie, tell your friends, then go and live your best lives. And thanks for listening. Well, friggin' done. Are we done? (laughs) We are not going back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. 
The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.